The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. I am uh, so grateful for the amazing musicians that lead us uh, so well. Would you take a moment with me? And we're going to pray. We're going to do it a little differently this week. Would you take a moment and just, if you have somebody to your left, if you don't have somebody to your left, you get to pick anybody you want. We're going to pray for that person to your left. And God, we just ask that for this person, if you don't have somebody to your left, you can pray for me. And we pray that for this brother or sister, that they would be blessed. That you would pour out your rich and abundant mercy and love upon them tonight. That they would sense, maybe for the first time, but hopefully, Lord, they've experienced it many times, that your love is truly unconditional. That no matter how we fail, no matter where we find ourselves, that you love us still. Lord, may we find great safety in that space. We pray, Lord, that the words of your Spirit would speak peace and comfort to this brother or sister. And then would you take a look at the person on your right? And would you pray for them as well? God, we pray that for this sister or brother, that this hour would be an hour of peace. That it would be a time that they set aside the the stress, the anxiety, the distractions, that they rest in your arms. And in your arms, that you remind them who they truly are, and how dearly they are loved. Lord, may it be so. We pray this together. We pray it in your name. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you, Ecclesia. I'm thrilled to be able to teach you um, this weekend, and uh, to invite you to consider some of what I think God has for us as a church. I wonder how many of you remember the feeling of being uh, invited into a new genre of literature. I think for most of us it happened around fourth grade. Um, I I don't have, there's not a a specific literary category. I call it the um, dog dies literary genre. Um, Anybody familiar, you remember being in fourth grade, it's where the red fern grows, it's old yeller, it's on and on. And I'm sure there are educators amongst us that could uh, explain why developmentally that was so important in that time and place. Um, But I remember specifically, right, this is where you've gone beyond uh, just readers, right, see Dick run, right, and these kind of, these to actually you're finally at this reading level that you get lost in a story, right? Anybody remember that feeling of like, you started to, to actually read series of books and, and a new world was opened up to you. And I remember in fourth grade, just starting to fall in love with reading and you get lost in this new world and then tragedy strikes, right? And I remember having a fourth grade teacher who needed to turn these books into like a Hallmark movie because um, it was so uncomfortable for her that we were undone. And I literally, like, where the red fern grows, I remember I was just undone, right? Um, I'm a dog person, I'm not a cat person. I could read Cat Dies books, like, all day. 
I wouldn't flinch. I wouldn't cry. I would have zero sorrow. If you're a cat person, you're likely offended. I'm sorry. I don't get it. They don't seem at all like other animals to me. They're not at all like dogs. I, I, I wish I understood your affection. You are clearly more loving than me, and I'm also allergic. So, But I can tell you that when the dog dies, right, for me, it's just, oh. And I remember specifically feeling um, something was missing when our teacher didn't want to allow us to just sit in that place. Anybody been in a relationship like that? Where it was just hard, and from time to time, I encounter Christians where I have a similar kind of feeling. I don't know how to categorize them either. I want to call them smiley Christians, right? That just, um, it's full teeth, it's sparkling teeth, and it has to be right. And the truth is, and this is so true if you read the Bible, it's so true in our own lives, it's really hard. In fact, it's impossible to truly be a smiley Christian all the time because the world is not smiley all the time. I'm going to tell you a little bit today about my visit to the Bahamas this week. It's tragic, beyond tragic. And in those places, right, we, we don't greet them with smiles. We have to be able to meet them with deep grief. And, uh, and I want to invite you today into the work of, I think, one of the more important figures in church history, and in his own right, a theologian that invites us to understand uh, what he would call a theology of the cross. Now, this fixture um, in church history, he was key in the Reformation, a guy named Martin Luther, is somebody that I largely ignored for much of my pastoral life. Um, I think I believe somehow that he was just like a protester because he's primarily known for nailing these theses on the wall, on the door of the Wittenberg church, right? And they were a protest to say, this is what's wrong with the church. And I have learned in my history and experience, I don't tend to resonate. You may be a protester and God bless you. I hope you love it and enjoy it. Uh, Whether you're on a really conservative end or liberal end, I've just never resonated with protests. Um, And maybe it's because when I was in probably sixth grade, I don't think our church organized it. I think it was like a unique individual in the church. They organized a protest and we were all brought together. We were given signs and we were put outside the 7-Eleven in Atascacita and we were protesting pornography. We had signs and we were, and there's a level of awkwardness period to the fact that you had boys in puberty protesting pornography. Um, But I'm quite sure that our presence only emphasized the fact that this store sold pornography. if, if we could go back historically, I am sure that they sold more pornography that month based on our presence there, right? I don't think our protests did anything positive. I think it's really easy to be the kind of person or specifically to be the kind of Christian that is known for what you're against, right? And we, it's easy to be against things. Now, there are a few times in time in history where people don't have a voice, I think in the civil rights movement, where protests were very effective, but I'd say it's rare. Um, and when it is, it becomes really important. I thought Luther was always a protester. And then when I began to read some biographies about Martin Luther, I found that he was much more complex and that his contributions were more significant. And today I wanna tell you a little bit about those contributions. Uh, Luther was born in, 18, in 1483, and he died in 1546. And I still think it's pretty amazing that you're gonna hear some truth from a man that was born in 1483 that I think today, if you hear it, 
that will make a real impact on you. Uh, Luther's um, serious journey of faith began in some ways, uh, in many ways, when he uh, had a near-death experience. He was in the midst of a storm, he was thrown from a horse, and he thought that he was going to die in this storm. He prayed to Saint Anne, and he prayed and said, if I survive this storm, I'll become a monk. Now, the problem um, with Luther in some ways in becoming a monk was that this prayer was really based out of fear, and almost everything Luther had done so far was based out of fear. Um, Luther's primary fear was of God. He feared God's wrath. He thought God was out to get him. And, um, and this was the primary driver for him. Now, the big problem with is if the main thing you're afraid of is God and you become a monk and all you do is sit and think and talk and pray to God, um, it becomes a really stressful thing, right? And he was deathly afraid of God. And now he's in this environment where all they did was talk about God. And he became consumed with fear and anxiety. Um, he was known uh, for having uh, a very extreme practice in confession. Um, he would go to the priest and confess, and he would stay for hours. He would then go back, and he would think of things that he forgot to confess, and he would come back over and over again. The other monks began to hate him because they thought he was just doing this to avoid the work that the rest of them were doing, right? And uh, ultimately, the priest in charge of his confession finally told him, you are not allowed to come back to confession until you sin in a grand enough way to actually deserve confession. So he, he suggested you might want to kill your father or something of the kind, right? Uh, which was a pretty painful thing to say because Luther had um, great tension with his father. Um, being a monk was not working out very well for him. Uh, ultimately, those in charge of him decided to separate him from the other monks. Um, he had what many of you would have and I would have if we're filled with anxiety. Um, physically, you manifest in some symptoms, right? And for Luther, um, like many of us, it was his stomach. So they would give him a hard time because he was always either in confession or in the bathroom. Um, and so they moved him to the tower, which they said was close to the bathroom. And, um, and they asked him not to participate in the rest of the life of the monastery, but simply to study scripture. And he studied the New Testament. He studied the gospels. He especially focused on Pauline's epistles and on Romans. And something happened to Luther when he began to read uh, Romans. Specifically, he, he came to this place that he realized that the righteousness that God required that was so severe, right? We have a, a holy God. But this righteousness that God required, the justice, he would say, that God demands, he also provides. It became this aha moment for Luther where he finally realized that he didn't have to be afraid of God. That the very justice that God demands, God also provides, and he had provided it through Christ, and because of who Christ is and what Christ had done, that he had no reason to fear God. And this became the turning point for Luther, where he went from being a man filled with anxiety and fear to being a man of really great courage and faith. And he launched into a new season of his life that was really, truly beautiful. There's a lot more I can tell you about Luther. I'm giving you a really poor uh, summary. There are great biographies you can read if you're interested. There's actually a really great movie called Martin Luther that's really fairly well done and somewhat interesting um, that you can watch on Netflix. Um, there are other, so many interesting things. He married a nun, which is not typical. Um, uh, he, uh, he said uh, of marriage that marriage was, uh, he described marriage as character school, 
He said, you get married because it, it becomes an education in your character. And many of us who are married could affirm uh, that Luther is correct, uh, that it will bring out these attributes in our character. So I want to teach you today about Luther's theology of the cross and why I think it's important specifically for us at Ecclesia, and then a few practical things that I think you can follow up on in light uh, of this teaching. To understand it, um, you have to understand that Luther was contrasting what he would call a theology of the cross with what he would call a theology of glory. Now, we tend to use glory in a positive sense. Luther was using it in a negative sense. And this is what Luther would say, that many people, many Christians had a theology of glory. That theology of glory was really a philosophy often about power that really said um, that the way to change, the way to redeem the world, the, the path to salvation came through power. You'd find this in a lot of, uh, of ideologies around us now. Some, of, some will believe it's political power, some will believe it's financial power, but that what you need is power and power uh, changes the world. Um, this often manifests itself in the kind of uh, certainty that says, we've now developed a theology where we can figure things out, and because we can figure it out, we can master it. Um, Luther's theology of the cross was radically different than that. Uh, a theology of glory also would take, um, I've tried to figure out the best way to explain this to you, so it's five o'clock and I'm hoping I nail it in this one, okay? Um, it would take things that are true and use them at the wrong times or the wrong places, right? Um, the, the best way I can explain to you would be um, if you take something that I fully believe, like the, this common Christian saying, that God is good all the time, and then you would say, you didn't say it with any enthusiasm whatsoever. <laughs> um, God is good all the time, and right. And in the midst of, like, I believe that's 100% true. Um, but if you encounter people in the midst of deep and profound sorrow, right? If you, you were walking with a friend who has lost a child and you think it's the right time to tell them God is good all the time and all the time God is good, right? Then you have seized an opportunity to wound them in a way with the truth, right? Because though it may be true that God is good all the time and all the time God is good, there are times in our life and journey that we do not feel near to God's goodness. There are times in our journey that we feel that God has betrayed that goodness. Now that doesn't mean God has betrayed that goodness, but we are fully within a healthy relationship with God to sit in that space. Part of what I've tried to explain to our church over uh, a, a number of weeks, and I, you're, I, I tell you this in part because uh, we've, ex we've experienced loss in our community in recent weeks. We've had uh, parents specifically experience loss. And I'm going to tell you some stories from the Bahamas of parents experiencing deep loss. And what I can tell you is that all grief is difficult. Grief takes a long time to metabolize. Grief is the kind of thing um, that you digest over a long period of time. And you can only do so much in different spurts. What I tell people is that most of us... Um, come into this world expecting at some point to lose our parents. Um, half of us will lose a spouse if you're married. Um, it's not likely that both of you will die within hours. There's a few stories on Facebook of the grandpa that dies of heartbreak after his wife dies or the one that hated her so much he doesn't know what to do after she's gone or who knows, you know, there's, it's very rare, right? If you, uh, if you're married, if you have siblings, the more siblings you have, the more likely you are 
to lose a sibling. But when a parent loses a child, it's an unnatural kind of loss, right? It's, um, I tell people it's like a whale that swallows plastic and you just don't have a way to digest it, so you have to hold it. And you just try to hold it well. And when you're holding that kind of grief, right, there is no version of trite Christianity that makes things okay. It just doesn't exist. And what I want to invite you into today is a theology of the cross that allows you some space to sit with people in the midst of deep and profound grief, and at some point to be reminded that if you have not come to a place of deep and profound grief, that you will. That if Christ did, that surely we will as well. In contrast, a theology of the cross is about weakness. It's about embracing doubt and seeing grace in a new way. So let me give you just a few characteristics uh, of Luther's theology of the cross, and then I'll give you some tangible ways that we can live into this truth. The first is that Luther would say, if you're gonna embrace this theology of the cross and embrace the cross, um, that we must be a people that embrace paradox. Right? The Bible is filled with, and, and really true spiritual, um, great spiritual truths are filled with paradox. They're hard to wrap our eight pound brains around. We can't fully uh, grasp them. Uh, the part of what led Luther to this conclusion was a passage by Paul in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 1.25, he says, you, you can count on this. God's foolishness, now remember, when Paul's saying this, no one would ever say, it would be a new idea to say that God is foolish. But he says, God's foolishness will always be wiser than mere human wisdom. And God's weakness will always be stronger than mere human strength. Luther wrestled with this passage for years. If you think you just read it and you understood it, you're kidding yourself. This is the kind of passage that you want to engage and wrestle with. I'd encourage you to read it, to read the whole chapter in 1 Corinthians 1 and say, what, what exactly is Paul up to there? It would be similar in some ways to what Jesus said to the disciples. Can you imagine, you've heard this passage likely before, but imagine you've never heard it and Jesus just starts to speak and he says, right, um, would anybody like to find their life, their true life? Right? And if Jesus said to you, would you like to find your true life? You'd be like, yes, Jesus, help me find my true life. And what are you expecting Jesus to say? Like, I'm gonna take you where to find it. I'm gonna give you the three steps to find it. I'm gonna give you a map to find your life. And Jesus says, to find your life, you must lose your life. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What do you think the disciples were doing when Jesus said this? Huh? What? what? To find it, we have to lose it? Right? If I told you to find your keys, you need to lose your keys. So, what are you talking about? <laughs> I have a GPS on my keys. I have no idea what you're talking about. Right? Jesus is, is inviting us into the tension of this deep and profound paradox. And it's in this place right, that we have to realize that we will never be the ones that understand the fullness of Christianity. We must be a people that embrace paradox. Secondly, Luther would say this, that the cross is in and of itself a revelation of God. It's not just the instrument of Christ's death, it's actually a revelation. It tells us that this is the way God works. That if God's going to work in your life, it will, he will work in your life in a cruciform way. 
That, that means that there will be evidence of the cross and of suffering in your life. That if God's going to lead you towards what Luther would call the good kind of glory, that he must take you through some kind of suffering in the same way that he took Christ through some kind of suffering. Because the truth is for all of us, right, that none of us, and we, we know this intuitively, but it's really hard to embrace because none of us wake up and go, God, I'm, I wanna learn more, I'd like to suffer more so I could learn more, right? Anybody get up and pray that prayer, right? We don't. We hope, we go, God, I would like to learn more, I'd like to be really wise, but I'd like to do it in a really comfortable way, right? I would love to have a season of growth where I, I relax and I eat chocolate cake and I drink margaritas and I'd like to learn a lot from that, right? If chocolate cake and margaritas could lead me towards um, an epiphany, that would be a beautiful thing, right? And yet nobody says, I was transformed by this beautiful season in my life where I ate so much chocolate cake and margaritas. I just learned so much, right? Um, we often look back though and we say, I went through the hardest seasons. I did not believe I would make it. I had to constantly remind myself to breathe. Do you remember being in a season like that where you have to say to yourself, breathe, breathe, breathe. And Luther says, in those moments, you are most identifying with the journey of Christ. Now, I am just like you. I would love to learn from chocolate cake and margaritas, but I know that that's not how my life will play out or your life will play out. And so then we must ask, how do we love one another well on a journey that will definitely include suffering? Luther says, embrace paradox. The cross is in and of itself a revelation of God. And then he reminds us that we as a people, I love this one, that we will find God in the most unlikely places. Right? You, you would think, right, given the religious world that we live in, that we would find God in these beautiful cathedrals, that we would find God in these, uh, these sacred vestments, right? I can tell you that I have found God more often in meeting a brother or sister that lives on the street in Montrose that is in great need. I can tell you that, and, and we've got a trip coming up, I'm gonna tell you about at the end, to Mexico City, where we go and sit with um, young sisters that had been trafficked, that had been tricked to come to Mexico City, and they, they had been um, uh, controlled and enslaved and sold on the streets of Mexico City. I can tell you that sitting with those young girls over a meal and sharing a really simple meal, that as I looked into their eyes, I encountered Christ in a way that is unlike any other way. I've met the Pope, I like the Pope, I got a good photo with him, but I encountered Christ in young girls in Mexico City. It's in the most unlikely places that we truly meet Christ. Now, part of what you need to hear in this, and it's hard for me too, is that um, you will also likely meet God in these places of sorrow. You will meet God in, these in the hospital room as you lose a parent. And it doesn't seem like the place you would want to meet God, but it's the place that because you need God, that you find yourself open to hear his voice in a new way. Luther was great at reminding us that we meet God in the places we don't expect. And then lastly, and I'll read you this text and give you some practical direction. 
that um, a theology of the cross allows us uh, to find purpose in suffering. Now, I want to encourage you not to try to move too quickly to that purpose. We don't walk into difficult times and then instantly go, I know why this is going on and it's okay, right? It's not okay, it doesn't feel okay, it feels really bad, but it also is this voice in the back of our mind that reminds us there will be purpose in this. We don't know when we will find it, we don't know when it will become clear, but we know that even in the midst of suffering, and especially actually in the midst of suffering, that God has great purposes for us. We see much of this uh, played out in Philippians chapter two. And this is what Paul says to us. He says, if you find any comfort from being in the anointed, if his love brings you some encouragement, if you experience true companionship with the Spirit, now already I just want to tell you, this verse, if you soak it in, will radically change the way you see your place in the world. Part of what Paul's already said is you are in the anointed. The anointed is in you. If, then his love brings you encouragement. His spirit brings you companionship. And so in the most challenging things we go through, we're not going through them alone. The spirit of God is actually present with us. If his tenderness and mercy fill your heart, then brothers and sisters, here is one thing that would complete my joy. Come together as one in mind and spirit and purpose, sharing in the same love. What's he say? As we go through hard times, as we walk in these challenging places, we need one another. We need to lean towards one another, share a common purpose, and that love and tenderness that God intended for us. He says, don't let selfishness and prideful agendas take over. That's the biggest problem we have going on in our world. We've got a lot of people thinking about what they want, what they need. He says, I want a people that actually care for the others first. Embrace true humility and lift your heads to extend love to others. Get beyond yourselves and protecting your own interests. Be sincere and secure your neighbor's interests first, right? It's the opposite of what they tell us on the plane when the oxygen mask drops, right? To take care of yours and then, I'm not telling you to do it differently on the plane, but Paul is telling us, right, that we're made to care for the other's interests. Drew Holcomb, I don't know if you guys listen to Drew Holcomb at all. He's got a song called The End of the World that I love and been listening to recently. But there's one line in it that irks me every time I hear it. And it's, it's a common phrase, right? He's, it's the end of the world, right? So smoke them if you got them, right? If you got them, smoke them. And every time I hear it, I kind of think like, is that, if the, it's the end of the world, is like that the last thing I want? Now I'm kind of big on last things. So if I eat a meal, I make a plan for what the last flavor I want in my mouth. Anybody else do that? And you, I set it aside and I want, like if, I'm, if it's the end of the world, whatever the last thing I do, that's kind of a big deal. And I'm like, I'm not smoking as the last thing I do in the world, right? Um, that's, I, I think if it's the end of the world, the last thing you want to do is care for someone else's interest. The greatest buzz, the greatest highs I experience have been found in truly serving others. It's when I feel most myself. It's where I, where I feel most loved by God. It's where I feel most at peace. Now, that doesn't mean I do it all the time. But if it's the end of the world and I've got to figure out what I want to do, I want to serve someone because that's what I'm made to do. Paul's reminding us that's who we're made for. Put others' interests first and things start to fall into place. 
He goes on and says, in other words, right? If you didn't hear what I said the first time, he said, let me say it another way. Just adopt the, the mindset of Jesus, the anointed. Just act like Jesus. Live with his attitude in your hearts. Remember that though he was in the form of God, he chose not to cling to equality with God, but he poured himself out to fill a vessel brand new, a servant in form and a man in deed. He humbled himself, obedient to death, a merciless death on the cross. And, and Paul wants us to understand that this that Jesus, came, he was fully God, and he humbled himself in this brutal, brutal form of death. He says, so God raised him up to the highest place and gave him the name above all, so that when his name is called, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and below, and every tongue will confess, Jesus the anointed one is Lord, to the glory of God our Father. Paul's trying to explain to us that if Jesus came to save all humanity, all creation, and the way to do it was through suffering and death. If he had to lose to win, right, then we, we find in that the, the theology of the cross that we must also be ready to do the same, that it's in suffering. That's actually, isn't it amazing to think that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and omnipresent, had all of that, right? And yet, the way to redeem all of creation was through his weakness, not his strength. Now, you gotta, this is, just because you've heard the story of Christianity before, you, you can't get lost in the fact, this is mind-blowing, that it's the weakness of God that portrays his great love. And so, is it possible that there's a great deal for us to learn about how to live in light of the theology of the cross. So let me give you three tangible expressions of how we can live this out together. So what, what should we do? Um, here's the first. Let's be a people that don't rush to resolve the tension. There are places in your life that you don't understand and I don't understand. There are things that happen that I can't fully grasp or explain. I may be able to find some small bit of goodness in that. Hurricane Harvey's one of those. There are little things I can say, but overall I just go, why? It just, it just doesn't. And we're a people that are made, I believe, to live in the midst of that tension, not seek to resolve it. And, and if you think of it in musical terms, this is what I'd say to you. Listen to a little more jazz and a little less pop this week. You listen to jazz, right? And what, it, what does it do? You're just, you're waiting for it to resolve. Anybody love jazz here, right? You listen to great, and it's just, and sometimes it doesn't resolve, right? Great trumpet players just know how to, they, they drag it out and you feel it in your body. Like, will this ever resolve? Like Taylor Swift has got to resolve like that, right? It's pop music, it's got to be happy. But life is not like pop music. Life is a lot more like jazz. We have to live in that tension in between. I would tell you this, I think it's the same with our theology. I, I think the disciples were a better example for how to listen to the teachings of Jesus. Right? When, when he taught a parable, much like when he said, um, you have to lose your life to find it, he'd teach these grand parables, and you know what the disciples did, right? They're like, what? What are you talking about? And yet, like, in seminary, I was trained 
to try to take these confounding stories that Jesus told that really confused people and confounded them. And, um, and really, we were encouraged to try to summarize them in three simple points, right? As if um, Jesus was the creator of heaven and earth, but he wasn't articulate enough to quite spit out what he really meant. And I'm going to tell you what Jesus really meant to say, right? I can't. Because you know what Jesus wanted? He wanted you to wrestle in the tension to find the truth. He wanted to get lost in it and struggle with it a bit. And he wanted me to struggle with it a bit. Because in the struggle, we have to rely on him. And that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Secondly, and this is a relational way to live out the theology of the cross. This is what I'd like to invite you to do. Would you reimagine your strengths? Or put another way, would you choose to lead with your weaknesses? As you, as you think about who you are and how you form relationships, as you think about how you relate to people close to you, what would it look like if you actually began to imagine that what makes you remarkable, what makes you a worthy friend are, are actually your weaknesses and not your strengths? There are things you do well. Some of you can read spreadsheets. I don't know. They look like Mandarin to me. I'm, I, I, they're, they're, I'm, I'm not good at Mandarin. There's so many things I'm not good at. You're really good at that, and that's great. But what if you led with these places that you'd say, this is where I really struggle. This is where I'm really broken. I've told you this before, but I don't believe that you have any amazing friends that you have found those friends by looking at them and going, you are unbelievably awesome, and I am also unbelievably awesome. We should be friends, right? That it's quite the opposite. You look at them and go, you are broken in some of the same ways I am broken, and I think we might be better if we made that journey together, right? That there are many of you that, um, and it's a sad thing, I don't mean to make light of it, for me it really is sad. My cardiologist is not pleased that you know, when I go to a Mexican restaurant, I, only, I, I either can eat no queso or I eat all of the queso. And I mean all of the queso. I don't have an in-between. I, I want to find it. I wish I had it. I don't have it, right? And yours may not be cheese, but it may be something else. And it's in that place that you go, we're alike in that. We struggle in that. And really what we need is support as we struggle well, not people that affirm how great we are, right? But you are great. We are great and that God made us to walk together. And that is a gift. What if we led with our strengths? My friend Thad Cockrell has a great new EP out that it's totally worth getting. He has this great song about his long distance relationship called Susie. And in it, he says, um, our strengths, you know, they're going to divide us. Our weaknesses are going to keep us close. And I hear that lyric, and I go, if you know, think about the relationship you have, it's totally true. Those weaknesses can bind us together in really beautiful ways. So lastly, let me give you one more, and we'll take communion. Um, this is one that doesn't come natural for any of us. I would suggest to you, that without Christ, this one would be almost impossible. That I believe that in light of a theology of the cross, what we must learn to do is to learn to sit in pain, to be present with pain. Now, that's hard for us to do just with our own pain. We often medicate, we distract, 
And yet, if we can learn to sit with our pain and sit with the pain of others, something beautiful begins to happen. Again, we're not sitting with it with a mission to resolve it. I spend a lot of time um, sharing time in hospitals with people. I, I very rarely have words to say. One of my mentors suggested to me many years ago, he said, um, there's not much you can say, but you're a rare pastor and that you can sing. You should just sing. You could sing a hymn, but that's about all you can really do. I, I believe we're a people um, that are better when others will sit with us in the midst of our pain. Let me offer to you two ways this week that we can do that. Um, we have developed a really remarkable trip to Mexico City. Um, we've got another one coming up in October, October 17th through the 20th. And this trip is designed not just so that you get to eat the best tacos on the planet, and they really are the best tacos on the planet, uh, but that you, um, you get to sit in the pain of others in a way that, um, I don't know quite how to describe it, but when you see other suffering that is so different than yours, it gives some kind of purpose and comfort to your own pain. I don't know if that makes any sense. That when I sit with a girl who's been trafficked and abused, um, it's really hard for me to have any pity parties for myself. And I instantly am drawn to also be the kind of person that is called to lighten her load in some way. We spend time in a neighborhood called La Merced um, where literally on one block you can look out and just in one street you can see more than 100 women that are standing out to sell themselves. Some are as young as 14, some as old as 65. And in the midst of that, you just begin to look people in the eye and, and feel a sense of their pain. We go back after spending some time there to throw um, what our friends and partners there call a block party. We just Ecclesia loves food trucks wherever we go. We just rent food trucks and we feed everybody and um, we serve them and w many of the women will then uh, do manicures uh, for the ladies or the men that work the streets in those places. And there is something that happens that's so remarkable when there is this healthy sense of touch that happens. Uh, just watching, I got to watch my daughter on one of our last trips just tell this transvestite prostitute what great hands he had, right? And just sit there and hold his hand and cut his nails. And um, something shifted as we sit in the pain with others. Um, I preached this sermon last week on the West Side, and same sermon generally. I ended with this invitation to sit with the pain of others. And as I uh, was driving home, I got a phone call from my friend Matthew Sweeting, who pastors a great church in the Bahamas. And um, we've been in correspondence. We started to gather and send resources to them uh, last week. But in the phone call, it became really clear. Matthew just kind of said, I I'm losing it. And it was an invitation in some ways for me to get on a plane. And uh, it wasn't what I planned to do this week. I didn't have any plans to go to the Bahamas. And yet we went and began to um, walk through and see some of what's happened. What I can tell you in the Bahamas, this is a sample of what things look like in islands like Abaco. Um, there's a level of devastation that's unlike anything um, I think we can imagine that we've seen from hurricanes. Um, every person I spoke to, on this trip, every person um, named people that they know, family members, classmates, or friends that were missing. There was not an exception. 
So it tells me that the loss of life is really, really significant. The church has been transformed into a warehouse. They've been sending boxes of supplies to all of the far out islands and they're receiving literally thousands and thousands of refugees that have come with nothing but the clothes on their back. Um, they're ready to kind of handle uh, food, clothing and shelter. Um, and what they need is for us to help make that happen. They're a really similar church in that they just have a lot of faith. Sometimes uh, our faith didn't even make sense, right? We just started taking care of people before we knew where the money was going to come from. I had a few friends that said, hey, we'll write a check, tell me what you need. But we just started doing it. They've been in a similar place. And people that were homeless, they've been putting them in hotel rooms. I called yesterday just to say, hey, what's the bill up to for the hotel rooms? And, um, and <laughs> they said, we... Uh, it's, it's a little out of control. And they, they said, we're a little, it's $180,000. And um, because they have so many people in hotels, just when people came in, they just wrote a voucher. Church will pay for it, right? And they just gave it to people. And now um, it's dragging on day by day. Um, what they desperately need to hear um, and see is that they're not in it alone. So as we um, conclude our night, as we celebrate communion, we're going to put the baskets out. There's an opportunity for all of us to give and be a part of that. All of that will go directly uh, to New Providence Community Church. We're going to be finding creative ways to gather as much funding and help as we can. Sometime in the future, there will be some opportunities um, to connect in some other ways. Right now, um, they need money much more than they need people. They're actually kind of flooded with people coming from the other islands. Um, that are coming to Nassau right now. And so I want to invite you to pray. I want to tell you one story that um, stuck with me particularly and um, just invite you to consider how our presence might be felt uh, in these islands that really are not that far away from us. Uh, one of the sisters we sat with, um, she seemed too young to be a, a grandmother, but she was. She had a granddaughter. And the granddaughter, um, she was really grateful, was in Abaco when uh, the storm hit. The, the storm surge came up to about nine feet in their home and the granddaughter couldn't swim. Uh, she was thrilled and grateful that the granddaughter was on the back of an uncle and, um, who could swim and that the granddaughter survived uh, this whole ordeal. But she said the whole neighborhood was filled with such loss um, that one of the men down the street um, lost his wife and his child um, as the surge hit. And that in the hours after the storm, when he came to grips with his loss, it was too much, and he, he took his own life. Um, I, I look at people in that place, and I just think, like, I don't want any of these children of God to feel like uh, there is no one who sees them. Now, we don't have a solution, but we can be a voice of comfort. And as a church, it's what we're made to do. I'm grateful there were many that came to our aid and comfort as well in our time of need. So um, I want to invite you. I wish I could give you one of these smiley sermons um, that just said, life's really good and make lemonade out of your lemons. And um, I, it might feel better for me. I t just tell you, I don't think it's true. I can tell you that there is hope in the midst of whatever it is that you suffer. I believe that. I believe that when we come together and walk with one another, I believe that for brothers and sisters in the Bahamas, that when they feel the love and support of neighbors near and far, 
that there will be better days ahead, that God is redeeming all things. Um, But I believe that um, if Christ suffered, that surely we will know pain and loss and grief as well. Would you join with me in a prayer? And I'm gonna invite you to the table. Lord God, I thank you that there is no pain that we will experience or endure that is unfamiliar to you. We're grateful not only to have a God and a creator who loves us, but who knows the depth of pain and suffering. And we pray, Lord, that in the midst of that, that you would offer us a sense of comfort and peace, that you would invite us to walk in a new way, that you would lighten our load. We thank you for this bread today, Lord, and we ask you to bless it. We thank you for this cup, for this wine and juice. And we acknowledge, God, that there are times that some of our suffering has been self-inflicted. There are places that we've made mistakes and we've invited pain in. God, we thank you that you cover that completely as well. We thank you that you forgive us completely and wholly. And so as we come to this table, Lord, we come as your sons and daughters with our heads held high, inviting a new day and a new opportunity to know you and walk with you. Help us to be the kind of brothers and sisters that will sit with the pain of others, that will be present in our pain, and that will trust that you're up to something beautiful and good in our lives and in the world. We pray all of this together, and we pray it in your name. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org. 